Welcome to the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. My name is Natalie Nidham. I'm a nutritionist, a human potential, and epigenetic coach, and I created this podcast to bring you the latest ways to take control of your health and longevity. We cover it all, from new technology to ancestral health practices, personalized interventions, and a very special interest of mine, peptides. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, folks. Today's episode is amazing. Today, we are talking to Carly Hayes, who is a registered dietitian, and she is the lead dietitian for Nutrisense, which is a company, well, it's an app, and their mission is to help to eradicate chronic disease by helping people to personalize their diet. And um, diet personalization, as you know, is very near and dear to my heart. Um, I truly believe that there is no one diet that is going to do it for everybody. Depends on your age, your stage, your activity, so many different things, right? So today we're going to talk about how NutriSense helps people to do that. And one of the ways that they do that is that when you sign up with NutriSense, you get sent a continuous glucose monitor, which is, well, we'll talk about what that is exactly, but just to give you a quick idea, it's a little tiny round device that you embed in your arm and doesn't hurt as much as it sounds like. It's got a little bit of a filament needle and it measures your blood sugar, your blood glucose levels in your interstitial tissue. So we're gonna talk about that as well um, through the day. And why this is important is because this can give you really great and important feedback about how your body is responding to different foods. And what we know is that everybody's body is different what one person, like one person might eat a banana and have very steady blood sugar and the next person eats a banana and they become pre-diabetic. Anyway, I'm getting into the episode. Let's not do that. Let's let you get into the episode. But NutriSense will help people to personalize their diet from giving, taking that data from the continuous glucose monitor, tumbling the numbers, coming back to you with recommendations on what you should eat, when you should eat it. And they even have people on staff that can help to assist you. So it's a really cool endeavor. I think it's a, it's a great service. So it's called the, to find, to learn more about NutriSense, you can go to NutriSense.io and, um, and just check it out, download the app, see what you think. And for Carly Hayes, you can reach Carly Hayes on Instagram, just with her name, Carly Hayes. And that's Carly with two E's at the end. So C-A-R-L-E-E Hayes, H-A-Y-E-S. Um, you're going to find her on Facebook. She's on LinkedIn. It's kind of all over the place. And uh, of course, if you're looking to connect with me, you can do that through my website, which is natnidham.com. Or you can join my group, the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Group. Now, on Facebook, I believe I had to rename it. It's the Optimizing Superhuman Performance Group. So you can look for both and you probably find it. Or if you're not a Facebook person, I recreated it on MeWe, and it's the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Group there. Um, what else? Oh, well, what else is, remember that none of the information in this episode is meant as medical advice always check with your medical provider before you make any of these big sweeping changes. And if you get value from this episode, you know what to do. Leave us a review. Please leave us a review because it's those reviews that help us to rise up in the ranks and to reach more people and help more people. And at the end of the day, this is why we do what we do. So thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you guys. Um, send me your comments and your questions, anything at all. I'm always happy to hear from you and get feedback. So enjoy the episode and we'll see you soon. 
Hey folks, before we launch into the episode, just one thing, we have a sponsor, drinkhrw.com. This sponsor is all about the magic of molecular hydrogen, and they make the most incredible molecular hydrogen products. They make molecular hydrogen tablets that you can easily just drop into your water every morning as you start your day. They actually even have flavored ones in raspberry flavor, if that's your jam. I like mine uh, plain with a squeeze of lemon, but I also love the raspberry. They even have tablets that you can drop into your bathtub to soak to get a whole body treatment of molecular hydrogen and tablets you can drop into a bowl of water and apply to your face. And so you might be sitting there wondering, so big deal, why would I drink hydrogen? I mean, hydrogen is the smallest molecule on the periodic table. Who cares about hydrogen? Well, let me tell you, you care about hydrogen. A lot about what we talk about in this podcast is about health span and lifespan. It's about aging well. It's about longevity. It's about managing your body system so that you can look, feel, and perform your best. And molecular hydrogen delivers on these points like nothing else does. Think about this. Molecular hydrogen actually combats oxidative stress as well as supporting a healthy inflammatory response. Now, we know that inflammation is at the root of virtually every major disease out there. We also know that it help, it makes us basically age faster. So I would qualify molecular hydrogen as a preventative aging supplement, and it is one of the easiest healthiest, best out there with zero negative side effects. It indirectly mitigates the damages of those three issues that ultimately lead the way in virtually any disease state and fundamentally is are the driving forces in why we age. We're talking about imbalances in oxidative stress, in inflammation, and as well as increased insulin resistance. So you don't really have to take my word for it, guys. You can go to the drinkhrw.com website, and I'm going to tell you that it is one of the most incredible repositories of research and articles all about molecular hydrogen. And you know what I love about this company is they don't just run around telling you how great molecular hydrogen is. They don't just cherry pick the best research articles. They're full on, flat out, pretty honest about this article, this clinical trial. Well, it didn't show us much yet. Here are the flaws in it, or here's what we think. It's an incredible resource, but I can tell you that Whatever it is that you're dealing with, there's probably a clinical trial going on somewhere um, looking at whether or not molecular hydrogen can be helpful. And I will tell you that in my practice, I've seen it be helpful to all kinds of people, people who are suffering from joint pain because molecular hydrogen is able to target inflammation, because it's able to support a healthy inflammatory response in the body, and it also promotes antioxidant and oxidative balance. You guys, you don't want to just be taking antioxidants by the handful. You want something on board that's going to help to keep you in balance to not too high, not too low, just keep you in that Goldilocks state. So like I said, I have clients who were blown away about how effective this molecular hydrogen, taking it every day, sometimes soaking an injured joint in molecular hydrogen water, what a difference it made in their mobility and in their ability to recover um, from their injuries and even also, of course, from workouts. So you're going to be hearing me talk a lot more about molecular hydrogen in the future. This is just the tip of the iceberg. I encourage you to go to drinkhrw.com 
forward slash superhuman. And you can use promo code longevity10, and that will get you 10% off everything that you purchase. And you can try molecular hydrogen for yourself. And by all means, reach out to me and let me know how you liked your molecular hydrogen experience. And by all means as well, please, please, please check out their website. It is one of the most incredible resources that I've seen for molecular hydrogen research. So thanks for being here today, guys. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the show, Carly. It's such a pleasure to meet you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay, this is going to be fun. Um, This discussion is, as we were talking about earlier, um, this discussion is so topical right now because there's a lot of attention and some noise about continuous glucose monitors. Should people who don't have diabetes actually even bother with these things? And of course, from where you sit and where I sit, we're like, uh, yeah, they should bother. And um, that's not always the point of view of our colleagues on the other side of... (laughs) of healthcare. So this will be a good conversation. So Carly, why don't you tell us a little bit about you? Tell like, how are you here representing NutriSense? What's your, what's your story? Awesome. Yeah. Great question. And I agree. Uh, CGMs are getting some much deserved attention right now, maybe not for the right reasons, but at least, you know, they're getting into, you know, the, the minds and and into people's um, thought process. So that's really Mm. exciting to me. Um, about me. So as you mentioned, you know, I'm from NutriSense. So I am a registered dietitian. And what got me into this space, really, I just love food. And I always <laughs> like to tell Funny, that's how I became a nutritionist. <laughs> right? I originally wanted to be a chef. I just love food. And I love to help people. So putting those two things together brought me to dietetics, nutrition, right? I think we can make a big difference in everyone's life. We can really help um, instill that passion for food in a good way. So hmm. that's what brought me to the profession. And I started out my career just in a very traditional setting. So I was an outpatient dietitian. So doing general outpatient counseling for usually people that were referred from their doctor. Um, yeah. A lot of times, most of the time, I would say it was a recent diagnosis with prediabetes or diabetes, right? Probably not surprising. We know that 30% of Americans right now have prediabetes. So yeah. it's, it's something that I saw a lot. And, you know, these individuals would come to me and they, you know, we work to manage their condition, but I started to get frustrated and, and asking myself, why am I the last referral, right? Like why mm. is nutrition the last piece of the puzzle here? Are we putting the, the cart before the horse there? Are we missing something? And I really started digging into the research and seeing, yes, 100%, we're missing that important piece of metabolic health. And if we address that, you know, 80% of these chronic lifestyle related conditions can be prevented or at least delayed by making those early lifestyle interventions. And Amazing. so I, I loved working with people and we, we made some big progress, but by that point, the damage is done to the beta cells of the pancreas, right? There's, there's some damage that we can manage and we can optimize, but it's always going to be better the earlier, earlier we work with these people. So all of these chronic conditions take, you know, years, decades mm-hmm. to develop, but we're missing all of that. We're waiting, we're missing that gap between optimal health and disease. And so I started looking and, and thinking, what are the, the ways that we can practically make a difference in these people's lives? And that led me to continuous glucose monitors or CGMs. 
And this is what I think is the most interesting, most convenient, and most insightful way to make a meaningful impact in metabolic health. So enter NutriSense, that's what we're using, that's what we're trying to accomplish. So we're trying to you know, make these early lifestyle changes so that people can improve their, their quality of life, their health span, and kind of pay attention to those early little warning signs before that diabetes diagnosis. So kind of putting that power back in their hands. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been really amazing. That's amazing. I love that. Um, so with NutriSense, well, actually, before we get to NutriSense, let, like, you know, it's such an interesting topic, this discussion of personalizing diet. And I think that one of the big strengths of continuous glucose monitors and, and, you know, you, you, you wear these things, maybe we shouldn't actually, before I jump ahead on that, maybe for people who don't know what a continuous glucose monitor is, we should, we should kind of share that with them. I think a lot of the people listening to this podcast will know, but not everybody does. And we call them CGMs for short. Um, But basically this is a device that you implant into the back of your arm usually um, strategically, <laughs> it's got a, it's got a needle in it that embeds in the arm and literally continuously monitors your blood sugar levels, is that, um, but it's you're doing it at a tissue level, right? So it's a little bit different than taking your blood. So maybe we can explain to people a little bit about the differences there. 100%. That's a great place to start. And you're absolutely right. It's a tiny little, I think of it like a bandaid. It sticks to the back of your arm and it monitors your interstitial fluid glucose. So it's this tiny little microfilament. It looks kind of like a hair, right? It's very, very small. So that just goes into your interstitial fluid and it measures glucose continually all day long, 24 seven. You're getting this time lapse of your glucose data. And I would say probably the most important thing is to go back to, okay, why, why do we care about glucose? Absolutely. What is metabolic health? Why is this important? And so when we think about, first of all, metabolic health, this is really just telling us how those, those pieces, those metrics of metabolic health are doing. And that includes, of course, glucose, what we're here to talk about today, but also, you know, your waist circumference, your blood pressure, your uh, blood sugar, your triglycerides, cholesterol, all that's involved in that piece of metabolic health. And when you think about traditional you know, healthcare, we are doing, we're monitoring a lot of those things, right? You get your labs drawn, you're seeing your cholesterol, you're, you're monitoring your body composition at home, but we're missing that piece of the puzzle that monitors your glucose. And so that's where CGMs can be really insightful because what that CGM does is it measures your glucose, like I said, all day long. Mm-hmm. So you have consistent access to every single variable that affects your glucose. And when we think of glucose, I think we always think of individuals with diabetes, right? They're measuring with that little finger prick device before their meals or maybe after their meals. Um, And that's great. That's awesome. But that really only gives us two data points, Mm -hmm. before your meals, after your meals. So I think of this as like a snapshot into your metabolic health. Whereas that glucose is that from the CGM is giving you continuous data. So you're seeing a time lapse of how your body's responding to every single input that you're putting in there. Yeah. And so with monitoring that, you can see a lot of things, not only how, you know, your diet is affecting you, which I think is what we all think of when we think of glucose, but also, yeah, the other pillars as well. So exercise, sleep, stress, all of those have a huge impact on your metabolic health. And by monitoring glucose, you're able to see how your body's responding to all of those factors individually. So it can be really, really insightful. 
And um, going back to, you know, fasting glucose or traditional lab metrics, I always think of it as, you know, if you were buying a house, right, sight unseen, and someone showed you one picture, yeah. would you buy that house? Yeah. You probably no. wouldn't. Right? Probably not. No. No. <laughs> You're going to tell your realtor, I need more information before I make a decision. And that's how I think of glucose too. We need more information to understand the full picture. There's so much nuance in our metabolic health that just one little snapshot is not going to cut it. And so Absolutely. if we think about, yeah, traditional glucose measurements. So we've got the fasting glucose, which of course can be really, really helpful for just that point in time, seeing where you're at. Um, and, but for some people, this is all that they're getting and that's just not enough information. Mm -hmm. Other piece of information you might get from your doctor is your hemoglobin A1C, right? Yeah. So, most people have had that test done at their annual labs and not to harp on the A1C. It can be good for a lot of purposes, but really what it's telling you is your average glucose over the course of about three months. Yeah. And so it's telling you kind of uh, what your glucose is averaging, not really the nuances of in and outs of your glucose throughout the day. Mm -hmm. And so there's a couple flaws there. The first one is glucose is fluctuating all day long. So if you're only looking at the average, right, you could be spiking really, really high in glucose, which is not great for us. You could go really, really low in glucose, not great for us. So both of those things can be missed just by looking at the average. Right. So the average could look fine in some ways, but really miss out on the money, which is those highs and lows. Exactly. Exactly. And so I think, you know, if that's the only metric you're getting, you're again, seeing only one piece of the puzzle. The other thing is that there are a couple flaws to the A1C test in itself. The hmm. first is that it's um, again, missing that variability and that variability. So those big swings in glucose tells us how we're feeling throughout the day. So not only are we missing, you know, our labs, but we're also missing, like, are you having these big energy swings that's linked to big swings in glucose? And that A1C is going to miss that metric entirely. The second thing is that that A1C is a assuming that your red blood cells live for about 30 days, yep. three months on average, right? So three months. Uh, yeah. So more than 30 days, 90 days, Yeah, 90 days, sorry, three months on average. Mm -hmm. And we know that that's not always the case. There are a lot of reasons that your red blood cells could live a little less than 90 days or a little more than 90 days. So like anemia, blood loss, certain medications, certain um, genetic conditions can make your red blood cells live a little less or a little longer. And so this can kind of skew that result. It's also not accurate in some ethnicities. So that's something to think about that no one really talks about. Uh, you get an A1C that's great and you're on your way, right? No one looks into it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But really when we start to look, we see that it's missing some of that and it can only be accurate and estimated about 50% of the time. Wow. So, so how does ethnicity affect HbA1c? Just out of curiosity. Again, with the red blood cells, right? That's just kind of um, altering the lifespan of those. Oh, okay. Interesting. So yeah. depending on your ethnic background, your cells are going to live longer or less time. Yes. In some, in some cases. Yes. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, what's interesting, I mean, the HbA1c is really just like a very rough snapshot. I think that you know, to get back to the continuous glucose monitor and why it would matter to see what's happening to your blood sugar over the course of the day. And also going back to fasting blood glucose, if you had a really bad sleep the night before you went in for that test, your, your blood glucose is likely to be much higher because poor sleep 
we know is going to drive up cortisol, could drive up blood sugar, like a whole bunch of, you know, there's a whole cascade of events that can happen. But, um, but going back to, I almost, I interrupted myself and lost my train of thought. Um, but CGMs. going, what's that? You were going back to CGMs and just kind of going through. Yeah. Right. And so, and so the value of, of the CGM to me, the real value is, is for people to see what is the effect of their actions on their blood sugar. And one of the things that, that I think we forget or people often forget is that one person's sugar spike is not the next person's sugar spike. Like there's, and, it, and it's affected by different things. It's affected by the gut microbiome and your personal response to things. But, you know, a banana for one person can be a diabetic event. <laughs> and for another person could actually be a beautiful, steady ride. So, and also depending on if, is it a green banana or a banana that's ready for bana- banana bread kind of thing. Um, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a great, great point. And I think for a while we've been following the glycemic index, right? And that's just kind of a, an estimate of how your body's going to respond to a food, right? How mm-hmm. high your sugar is going to get from a specific food. And this is based on averages. Again, we want to kind of get away from those averages yeah. because we're all so unique. Yeah. We've been following this just general um, plan that's provided by, you know, doctors, nutritionists, just kind of as a general guide. And that doesn't tell us how we uniquely respond. So you mentioned, you know, bananas, that's a great one because that's one where a lot of people will generally shy away from that food because it's a starchier fruit. It has a higher glycemic index versus berries or other lower glycemic index foods. But what we find when we start to monitor glucose, myself included, is that our response is not going to be the same as another person's response. We all have different genetics microbiome differences, different carbohydrate tolerances that are going to affect how we uniquely respond to any given food. And this doesn't mean, you know, we can't ever have that food, but it's always good to know how we uniquely respond. For example, when I first started measuring my glucose with the CGM, I started testing all of these different fruits. So on an empty stomach, you know, first thing in the morning to kind of eliminate any variables that might affect that response, I started testing very similar carbohydrate counts of different fruits. So 30 grams of blueberries versus 30 grams of banana in carbohydrates. And what we started to see, what I've seen in a lot of my users is that my response doesn't always link up to the glycemic index. So I can follow that as a general guide. And that's a a good practice if you that's all that you have. But really to understand your specific body to know which foods that you uniquely respond well to you've got to experiment, you've got to see how you respond uniquely to those foods. And that's where the CGM can provide so much insight to what's the, what's the diet that's right for me? Should I follow the keto diet? Should I, you know, add in more carbohydrates to my diet? And I think, you know, you can only know that if you test for yourself. Mm-hmm. And also if your data is coming from your own body, that's going to be a lot more meaningful, a lot more sustainable in terms of behavior change than a general, you know, generic plan that you get online somewhere. Right. I Absolutely. Think more. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely about personalization. And I think the other nice thing about the CGM is that it allows us to see what our blood sugar response is to a food at 30 minutes after the meal at an hour after the meal. And so how long, so even if you have this crazy blood sugar spike, does it normalize right away? Or are you staying up there for the next two hours and it takes forever 
for your body to respond and put that sugar away. And I think that, and when it puts it away, are you diving into hypoglycemia, which people would feel, um, but even if it's not hypoglycemia, if it's taking a very long time to get the blood sugar down, then that's very different than someone whose blood sugar goes super high, but then it comes right back down again within the hour, hour and a half. Do you find that with the? 100%. You know, if we think about a normal glucose metabolism, some fluctuation, some rise in glucose after eating is normal and good, right? Normally we're going to eat a meal. We're going to have a glucose rise. Our body's going to respond by releasing insulin. And that's Mm -hmm. going to bring glucose down ideally within about two to three hours after eating. So we're looking at the peak, right? We we want to stay under 140 most of the time. We're looking at how high we shift because those big shifts in glucose can be linked to energy changes, mood changes, just not feeling great, hunger, right? All that is linked to those big swings. Mm-hmm. And then we want to see that come back down. So we should see a, a really beautiful glucose curve. Um, and we can monitor that with the CGM. If you did not have a CGM, right? It would be really hard to track that. You could definitely test every 30 minutes. It's a lot a- of holes in your fingers, I'm here to say. Like it's, yeah. your fingertips get pretty sore after a while. <laughs> It's not fun. Um, And there's still the ability to miss some of that, right? A lot of times we'll have a very rapid shift within the first, you know, 15 to 30 minutes. So if you were only testing before and after, you might miss all of that entirely and miss that peak, thinking that food is a good choice for you, even though you just missed the spike, right? So I think that's one thing that you can get from a CGN that you can't get elsewhere. But also, yeah, you can see, is it taking me longer to get back down to baseline, right? How long is it taking? What does my glucose curve look like? Mm-hmm. And when we think about monitoring glucose, this is our best proxy for our insulin response and how our body is responding to that insulin. So a lot of times we'll be able to assess for your insulin response in that postprandial or that after meal response. Yes. So if we were to compare that to someone that had insulin resistance or an abnormal response, we would see the same thing, right? You eat that same food, you have that glucose spike, your body responds by releasing insulin, but either it doesn't do its job. So your body's not responding to that, or it's taking longer to do its job. So by looking at that full picture and that glucose curve, you're able to see where the issue is coming from and maybe try some experiments to improve that response. Nice. Yeah, no, I love it. And I think, you know, and so with the app, like what, how much information, so I, 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 I'm confessing that I haven't spent that much time with the app, but does the app give, so, so guys, when you get, um, when you sign up with NutriSense, you're going to sign up for a period of time. They're going to send you one or two or more glucose, continuous glucose monitors. Each one lasts for two weeks. Um, so how much, other than telling people what's happening, how much information does the app give people in terms of what to do instead? Cause like, you know, let's say the banana really spikes your blood sugar and let's say you added some almond butter with that banana. So some fat, which might help to slow the absorption of the, of the carbohydrate into the gut, which may blunt that blood sugar response. And, you know, so, so does the app actually teach people, what to do about it now, or how does that work with, with NutriSense? That's a great question. And that's something that we've worked really, really hard to simplify a little bit 
Yeah. As you probably know from monitoring glucose, it's not always intuitive. There mm -hmm. are so many different nuances to consider. So it can be hard to know, okay, what's really going on in my body? Is this good? Is this bad? Should I be concerned? And then like you mentioned, what can I do about this to optimize this in the future? So our app does this in a couple different ways. The first is that we have, you know, food logging. So you log your food, you log other activities as well. So any exercise, stress, sleep fasting, uh, sauna, cold exposure, anything that you're doing, you yeah. can log that so that you can see how your body responded to that stimulus, right? So say you log a meal, what's going to happen is the, the app is going to calculate your glucose score to that meal for that two hour period. So in that score, we're going to take into account your peak, we're going to take into account your area under the curve. So again, how that glucose curve looked, your delta, so how, how big was that shift? Did you have a huge shift from a very low value? Was it a very small shift that went a little bit higher? Um, and then again, how quickly you recovered and went back to that baseline. Right. So you get to see that kind of metric, which is really helpful. You get to kind of rank your scores and see which meals you responded best to. But and then we also have, and this is what I do, I'm a dietitian. So you have, you're paired with a dietitian that's trained and kind of an expert in the space so that they can explain what's going on, point out any variables that you might not be seeing, and then offer some experiments or some strategies to improve that response in the future. So you mentioned a really, really great one, right? If you have carbs on an empty stomach, probably going to have a pretty big spike. <laughs> yeah. So much more sensitive to carbohydrates on an empty stomach. So by adding a little bit of fat, maybe a little bit of protein and eating that portion first, we can often blunt that response. Same sort of thing with, you know, if you're having carbohydrates late at night, you'll often have a bigger glucose response. And this is, as you probably know, because our insulin sensitivity is very closely aligned with our circadian rhythm, yeah. just like melatonin and other hormones that help us digest food. And so we are going to digest food best in the day and a little less um, appropriately in the evening hours, just because we're not primed to be digesting food at midnight, right? Yeah. So yeah. if we have foods later on, we're going to have either larger responses or slower responses back to baseline. Yeah. Sometimes just by moving that up a little bit earlier in the day, we can, we can make a big difference. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. There was actually a study that was done. I, I read it a couple of years ago now where they had two groups of women and actually they studied women in this case, which you know, all these women biohackers are out there. There's not enough women's research, but in this case, they did, they did study women and they had to eat the exact same foods, except that one group ate all their calories before seven 30 and the other group ate into the night. And like they ate after seven 30 at night and the blood sugar response in the after seven 30 group was way worse and different than the before seven 30. And so helping people, I'm sure like, you know, I'm, I'm constantly working with my clients, trying to help them at least most of the time to stop eating by seven o'clock yeah. in the evening, which is tough. I mean, in, you know, in, in these days, especially as people are working from home, I think as much as we would have thought it would have given us more control over our time in some ways, it's blurred the lines between work and life. And um, it's made it a little harder for some, for a lot of people to draw the line. Oh, 100%. This is something that we've seen over and over again is if you're working from home. Yeah. You might work later into the evening. You might take more breaks during the day, or just like you mentioned that inability to shut work off because it's right in your face all the time. Yeah. And that leads to a bunch of different stress issues and glucose concerns, which we can definitely get into. 
But that's where I think really what I love about my job is I can work with someone and say, okay, hey, I'm seeing your glucose elevated in those hours in the evening. Let's maybe focus on earlier dinners. If that doesn't work, if that's not a realistic strategy for you, okay, let's maybe try altering the composition of that meal. Can we lose the carbohydrates or choose something that your body does a little bit better with? Can we maybe add a after meal walk to help your body use that glucose a little bit better? Or if nothing else, can we make that your lightest meal of the day so that your body is having to work a little bit less um, when insulin is so insulin sensitivity is so low to get glucose back down to homeostatic range? Yeah, no, and that's a great point. And you know, it's interesting because very often you will hear people saying, well, you know, save your carbs for your evening meal because they'll help you to sleep because they kind of throw you into that food coma. But finding that balance where it's for some people, a little bit of carb with their evening meal actually is a good thing. But and because to the point that you just said, combining it with the fat, like we're not eating just a bowl of right rice, hopefully. As much as it might be lovely, we try not to do that. But if you're having that white rice with some protein, some healthy fats and whatever else, you know, for for people who can tolerate it or manage the amount of white, of, of the carb, the carbs can sometimes can help them to sleep. But, you know, what's interesting about the sleep is for people who wake up in the night, this is another place where I found CGMs really helpful because that client, or, or in your case, the patient who wakes up at two or three or four in the morning, understanding, was it a blood sugar drop that caused them to, to wake up? So that it gives us input, first of all, in how their body's managing their blood sugar. And also, you know, could we change the composition of those meals so that they have a more even blood sugar uh, level curve? <laughs> Just more stable values throughout the day. And this is definitely something that we've seen a lot as well. You know, those drops in the middle of the night, there is no way to catch those unless you are wearing a CGM or you're willing to wake up in the middle of the night and check your blood sugar, which first of all, it's a mess for your sleep. (laughs) It is. And when it comes to sleep, I think, you know, we know that the relationship between sleep and glucose is bidirectional. So high glucose values can lead to poor sleep but poor sleep can also lead to abnormal high glucose values. So there's definitely this relationship there. And that's because, you know, the body perceives either fragmented sleep. So waking up frequently throughout the night or inadequate sleep where in our stressful world today, we're putting sleep off. We're getting six hours or less a night just to make time for everything else. And what happens is this automatically reduces or impairs our insulin sensitivity for the next day. So a lot of the times, if we have anything off in sleep or stress, we're going to see higher values that whole next day as a result. So we might have worse postprandial values to foods that we traditionally do well with. We might have, you know, higher baseline values because we have that stress because sleep was off. So it's definitely a big thing that we see a lot and that we're always trying to optimize Um, and then with the nocturnal, you know, those drops in glucose that you see a lot of times, if we see those, we can identify those and say, Hey, were you awake during this period? Did you have, you know, some restless sleep right around this time? If that user or that patient did, then we can dive a little bit deeper. You know, are you going through menopause? Do you Mm -hmm. drink alcohol at night? Is this causing your drops? Um, is your stress really, um, suboptimal? Are you managing that? Is that causing these big fluctuations? 
And then we can also experiment with, you know, is caffeine affecting you and your stress response a little bit more? Um, do you have hypothyroidism? Is there an adrenal issue that we haven't uncovered? So a lot of time that CGM just tells us where to look so that we can probe deeper and get to that root issue, which is oftentimes the, the thing that we want to address in the first place. Yeah, there's the money. Do um, Does NutriSense um, work with any of these other tracking tools? Like the or like I'm wearing an Aura ring, I have a BioStrap that it will really monitor um, my metrics through the night. Um, are you guys interfacing with those guys at all yet? Or have you thought about it? Because it would, again, it would be interesting to see if in the night your people are waking up or their sleep quality starts to go south, if the blood sugar at the same time, if there was a correlation with blood sugar at the same time. Yeah. So that's something we're working on to integrate with more um, other apps and other wearables, because we think that's the future right yeah. now. We do connect with aura, but it's only going to show us, you know, the total amount of time that you slept. It's not going to give us any specifics about your quality of sleep or your sleep score. So a lot of times if a user is using the aura ring or anything like that, we can kind of ask for, for questions and, and they can send screenshots to our dietitian so that we can make those correlations. Yeah. Uh, we've had some users that have done some really interesting work by overlaying their aura data with the glucose data. And sometimes it aligns so perfectly that it's, it's just unreal. So seeing both of those metrics and kind of putting those pieces together can be a game changer. Yeah. That's really interesting. Have you seen, I'm sure that blood glucose um, will affect heart rate variability as well, right? Like, I mean, it's going to have a huge impact on your recovery. 100%. We see yeah. this all the time and it's so fascinating. You know, alcohol is one of the, the things that affects heart rate variability yeah. the most um, because it's affecting your sleep. It's affecting your recovery. And we see that almost align perfectly with CGM data, which is always so fascinating. So um, definitely an area that we see a big correlation. So having, again, those two pieces of the puzzle can be so insightful. So not only are you seeing, okay, well, my recovery was low. Um, you know, I didn't do very well there. And then you can also see, well, my glucose was higher actually, and it stayed higher for that entire next day. And that really correlated with how it was feeling, how my energy levels trended throughout that next day. So, um, again, more pieces to the puzzle and more motivation to yeah. maybe make that change and maybe, okay, I'm not going to have six drinks when one night I'm going to maybe focus on two to three, see how that affects my HRV, how that affects my glucose and kind of see if that's a meaningful change that can stick. Yeah. Bad news. It's still going to hurt. I had one Negroni last night <laughs> that I nursed from six 30 and I don't drink typically. So I had a Negroni that I nursed from six 30 until the end of dinner, which I guess would have been, I don't know, quarter to eight or something. And my HRV was in the toilet. <laughs> it was awful. And, and interestingly enough, you know, my heart rate didn't stay up. Because usually I would get a message that says, oh, your heart rate lowered late last night. And that always will count against you with all these with all these wearables and stuff. But my my heart rate lowered early. But I think, you know, the only thing I did different last night is that I had that one drink, which I never do. And my HRV this morning was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like It's just... Don't you hate that? We see that in glucose all the time as well, just from one drink. And so, you know, a lot of our users will think, well, I'm just going to have one. But what, what happens is, right, if you have one, usually you're having, you know, 
something to eat with it a lot of the times. And when we have that combination of alcohol and food, what happens is our body is going to prioritize breaking down that alcohol, mm. right? That's oxidative priority number one. So, and then anything that we ate with it is going to be broken down later in the evening. So we'll see these delayed glucose spikes, <laughs> longer returns to baseline, and then a, usually a pretty high uh, baseline the next day. This is different for everyone. There's some people where it doesn't really affect them at all, but some people just with one drink, they'll see those higher values the whole next day. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I, th- I mean, I think what I love about this whole idea is helping people to see what happens when and what if, and then the positive side, you know, then now when you make those changes, look at the, like how great it is. And I do find that with most clients, they find that so encouraging. They just kind of dig into it. Like the right client is going to just lean in and, and just go big. And you get the occasional person who's like, okay, this is too much information. Can't deal with this stuff. Um, but definitely for the people who are ready to, to step up and are curious enough, um, these tools can be really, really powerful in terms of, you know, and I, and I was going to ask you also, like, do you ever work with athletes in helping them to optimize their performance with, again, using all this information? Oh, I would say it's, you know, something that we see a lot. It's not our, you know, the biggest demographic that we get, but we do get athletes, whether it's, you know, really intense athletes. We've had a lot of marathon runners. Mm. Interestingly, my friend is running an ultra this weekend and I actually helped her. She wore a CGM for a month and we really fine tuned her nutrition for her marathons. And she had just a, a regular marathon two weeks ago and killed it just smash it out of the park because we were able to kind of fine tune her intake to match her um, energy demands. Right. Nice. So I think that's huge. If you can wear a CGM and see how your body's responding to exercise, you're able to fuel appropriately, improve your performance. I think a lot of times, um, you know, we expect to see exercise always decrease glucose. I think that's something people look to see, but that's not always the case. Right. So if we have um, an exercise that's requiring a ton of energy output. So if we think about fasted exercise, or if we think about like high intensity exercise, so you're running hills or you're doing CrossFit or you're doing something that requires a big burst of energy. A lot of times we'll see a glucose spike. And that, as you can imagine, right, is because your needs outweigh what your body has available in energy in its storage. Mm -hmm. So the body's really, really smart. And it flexes by kind of producing or releasing that glucose from the liver to supply energy for the movement, which is really cool, right? But if we're having spikes that are a little too big, that might be a sign, okay, we need more uh, glucose in our storage, we need to fuel more appropriately before that movement. So our body isn't under such great stress during the exercise itself. Yeah. And then, you know, in the, in the, uh, terms of my friend who is doing a marathon runner for those like really long endurance training, we expect to see this gradual drop in glucose over time because our energy output is kind of meeting the stores that we have available. And if we see it bonk, right. Yeah. As you see the bonk. Like, yeah. 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 And, and they're telling me, you know, my energy was low. I just didn't feel great. Then that's a sign that we really need to fine tune what we're eating during that run, really focus on carbohydrates that your body does well with or whatever fuel that you feel your best with. And that's going to keep you stable. So with her specifically, we were able to keep her glucose stable throughout her 26 mile run wow. um, so that she felt her best, which is really cool. That's amazing. And so what about with a fat adapted athlete? So there you're going to see 
right? I mean, so now we're not, we, we don't rely on the sugar necessarily to fuel the, the activity, but you still need that little bit of glucose to keep certain systems alive, as it were. Um, I think that sometimes people think, oh, well, if I'm fat adapted, I don't need any glucose and you kind of need a little bit. And in a marathon, even in these endurance sports where being fat adapted is a huge advantage because you kind of have that steadier flow of energy, that little, that little hit of sugar or glucose or something for that final kick at the end can really make a difference for these guys. Right. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think one interesting thing is we had a carnivore on our plan that ran a 100 mile marathon. Wow. Completely carnivore wearing the CGM. And what we saw was his glucose really stayed kind of flatlined. It did fluctuate just a little bit. But what that tells me is that your body's fat adapted, you're able to tap into alternative fuels, if you need it, your body's able to adapt to the energy state you put it in, which is really cool. I think a lot of times we a lot of people are under the assumption that if you exercise at all, you need carbohydrates, you need snacks mm-hmm. before you work out. So <laughs> I'm doing a 60 minute workout. I need a snack. No, probably not. Your body is smart and it can adapt. So yeah. I think that's another thing that we see a lot. Um, we do see that for endurance training, sometimes being fat adapted is enough. You don't necessarily need glucose um, exogenously. But a lot of times when you're doing those longer runs, or if you're doing anything that requires a big burst of energy, like big climb or a sprint or anything like that, then a little bit of good quality carbohydrates in a form that you tolerate well can Mm -hmm. really optimize your performance. And you can see on your CGM that it doesn't affect you. So that's kind of that motivation that that's a good strategy for you. Yeah, no. And I think that the CGM for, for, for athletes has got to be a really cool training tool to take a lot of the guesswork out of how to fuel those, that performance. Oh, 100%. And even in people that aren't athletes and are just trying to exercise for their metabolic health or for Mm -hmm. weight loss or whatever they're trying to do, I think seeing that data and seeing that, wow, when I have a strength training workout, or if I go for a walk after my meal, I can tolerate a little bit more carbohydrates, or I can tolerate these foods that otherwise I might have a big response to. And this goes back to that motivation, that kind of fire inside of you that, oh, my body's telling me that I'm doing well with this. I can actually have this in my diet. And that's really freeing to know that, okay, I have the power to improve my body's response to this food. All I got to do is add some strength training, which is going to, you know, help your muscles soak in more of that glucose and utilize it. Yeah. Clear out the glycogen and kind of help with that glucose disposal. I think that's such a motivating factor to continue that workout regularly to reap those benefits. Yeah. And when we think about behavior change, right, I think that's just such a more meaningful metric than looking at weight or anything else that people are trying to achieve. I love that. That's, I mean, it's, it's all so positive, right? It's all such a, it's such a, I don't know, it's such a good news story kind of thing. Like you can control, you can learn, you can adapt, you can learn how it is that you can have your, at least your, some of your favorite foods. I mean, if your favorite food happens to be Krispy Kreme donuts, you may have to negotiate a bit on that, but, but we see that a lot, right? Someone will have, for example, take myself, my favorite holiday food is chocolate covered pretzels. Oh boy. No matter what I do, I spike to those babies every single time. 
And if you think about it, right, it's, it's concentrated sugar on top of refined carbohydrates. Yeah. So it really doesn't surprise me that I spike pretty high to that, but every single time I have it, um, you know, we're looking for peaks below 140, that quick return to baseline. I fail on both accounts. Oh, so you do? <laughs> okay. What that's done is shown me that, okay, this is a food that I'm kind of always going to spike with. There's some things that I can do to optimize my response. I'm always going to have a strength training workout first. I'm always going to eat protein first just to kind of blunt that response. And then I'm going to try and go for a walk uh, afterwards. I'm most certainly never going to have those when I've had a poor night of sleep or I'm really yeah. stressed, um, which is funny because when you're stressed, that's when you normally crave that stuff. But um, so there's things that I can do to improve my response, but it really tells me that, Hey, this isn't a food that I'm going to have all the time. And it's not because of my weight. It's not because of my appearance. It's because I care about my metabolic health and that's more motivating to me. Yeah, no, and that's a great point. I think that people get so hung up on weight and metabolic flexibility, right? The ability to tolerate this stuff, the ability to switch between fuels and metabolic health is about your brain health down the road. It's about managing inflammation. It's about, you know, and inflammation being at the root of every disease from arthritis to diabetes and everything in between kind of thing. So, I, I do think that it's it's such an interesting thing. People get so hung up on sugar and we've turned we've demonized sugar in a way and helping people to understand what their individual responses to different sources of sugar so that they can still maybe enjoy things that they might have thought are really off limits, but in a different way so that it doesn't, you know, knock knock the daylights out of them kind of thing. Exactly. I think, you know, a lot of times people will say, I don't want to wear the CGM. I don't want to know. I don't want to know what my foods are doing to me because that means I can't have them. Yeah. But really, I, I think people are often surprised that, wow, I can have bananas. Oh my gosh. I can have white potatoes. I can have white rice and I'm okay. But maybe, you know, some of those processed foods that almost universally cause those spikes, that's just more motivating to see, okay, this isn't worth it. I'm going to try and swap some of these things that I do well with. And then I can still live my life. I can still have freedom in my food choices, but I'm able to do it in a way that my body is telling me that it responds well to. So amazing. So yeah. do you, so we talked about this a little bit at the beginning. Um, so we've talked about all the good things about CGMs, but sometimes CGMs can misbehave a little bit. So have you come across this at all? Because I've seen it. Like, I mean, I've worn them a couple of times and really gotten a lot out of it, but I have, I have a client in particular who it just, the numbers just weren't matching up for her and it continually had her very high. And so mm -hmm. do you find that there's certain people that for some reason they don't, is it the person that for some reason they're not, their interstitial fluid is not a good representation of their blood sugar, or is it just the devices sometimes that get whacked out? Do you have, do you have a sense of that? Have you seen that at all? We have, and I think an important thing to, to point out first is that we're using the Freestyle Libre, right? So it's an FDA approved device. Yeah. Um, but one thing with CGMs, all CGMs and glucose meters is that they can vary up to 15 to 20% from what you would get at your lab draw at your doctor's office. And wow. this is accepted by the FDA, big. right? Yeah. This is accepted as accurate. And so what we've done in our app to try and kind of combat this is allowed for a manual calibration. So you can kind of take your fasting glucose, either with a glucose meter or with a lab value that you had recently, and we can adjust that baseline value. 
Now the mm-hmm. trends, right? Those spikes, those drops, all of that should be precise um, yeah. and accurate and reflect that real change, which is really what we're there for, right? That postprandial value, we know there's a lot more value to that than there is to just one metric over time. Yeah. But what we've done is you can add that manual calibration so that, you know, if your glucose is 20 points higher on the CGM, you're able to adjust for that and bring that whole baseline down. But the other thing to consider is that, like you mentioned, the CGM is measuring interstitial fluid and the glucose meter is measuring blood plasma, right? Yeah. So we're measuring two different things. And to think that those will ever match up perfectly is like chasing a unicorn. So mm-hmm. I think um, that's one thing to, to remember and that there's always going to be a lag time. This is something that I see a lot is that, you know, you test with your CGM and you'll see one value but you'll see something much lower on your glucose meter that you do with the finger prick. And that's because that interstitial fluid is about, uh, about 20 to 45 minutes behind that plasma value. Okay. So, so it's, it's fat. It's slower. Yeah. 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 So when we, when we see that and it, it almost follows this like beautiful pattern is that, you know, that glucose is going to move from your blood vessels first. So sure. seeing that plasma glucose into the capillaries and then into the interstitial fluid. So it takes time. Yeah. After meals or after exercise, that's going to slow down even more when you're fasting, those can match up or be about 15 to 30 minutes off, but any other time in the day, they're usually completely different. Um, so we're always measuring when we're fasted and we can kind of adjust for that difference there. And is it different? And is it affected if someone has more fat mass versus someone who's much leaner? Like, do you see a difference there? We have seen So like you mentioned, you know, when people have lower body fat, they can nick a blood vessel, they can hit the muscle, it can be harder to find that, that fatty tissue. And that's really where we're going to find the best accuracy. So always, you know, finding the fattest part of your arm, like looking around, trying to find that, that sweet spot on your tricep. The thing um, you wish you didn't have is actually going to serve you at this point. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So we see, you know, people that have the lowest body fat, often have the, the worst time trying to find that perfect spot, but we can help kind of find that and locate it. And sometimes it's better on one arm than others, but definitely something we can play around with. Yeah. Well, and definitely, and you know, it's funny, we didn't talk about this at the beginning, but people are very often quite intimidated by putting it, like putting in a CGM. And I've seen it a lot with biohackers, like people in my community who are like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. And they, they, they sign up with you guys, or if they're in Canada where I am, we can actually we can actually go buy a glucose monitor, which is odd, uh, without a prescription. But then they sit with it with that box on their desk at home for days and weeks, trying to get the nerve up. <laughs> yes, we see this all the time. That so you do insert it with a needle, and I think that can be really intimidating. You don't know how it's going to feel. This is a very sensitive area, but really, I mean, for you me, don't feel it. For most people, you don't feel it. Like we mentioned, that sound of the sensor actually like going into your skin is scarier than the actual feel of it. So. Yeah. And guys, just so you know, if you've never installed a glucose monitor before, it's um, a CGM or at least the Abbott Labs one. It is, it's, it's, it kind of comes with this little loading device. It's round. And you just literally, you just press it against your arm and the whole device does the work itself. There's no, you don't have to handle a needle. You don't, you, literally, it's like nothing. It's just pressing a block against your arm and the device does the work for you. So it's, 
it's not that big a deal, but it's definitely um, the first time out is usually for people a little bit scary. But um, I was also going to say, didn't isn't didn't Abbott come out with a second and third generation on their continuous glucose monitors? They did. Yes. So we're not using that yet. Um, that's still in the works, but we're still using the original model um, and finding good success with that. So um, definitely might be something we experiment with in the future. But right now we're using that one. Just, you know, cost availability seems to be most applicable for the broad population. And we're trying to reach as many people as we can. For sure. Yeah, no. And I think that's such a, I mean, it's such a powerful tool. And for people who are willing to step through the door, it's they can just learn so much about themselves, right? Right. And I think, you know, you and I talked on this a little bit earlier, but there's this common belief that anyone without diabetes maybe shouldn't have access to this because why would they need to, why would you need to monitor glucose if you don't have glucose problems? And again, I I think that I see where they're coming from and I really want to resonate with that and show empathy. uh, But I don't agree. So we know that, you know, about, you know, most times CGMs need to have a prescription. So where you're at, you can get one over the counter, which is excellent. Right. Right. But in America, you have to have a prescription and it's usually only used for type one diabetics, but mm-hmm. some type two, but really that's even underutilized in itself. So about 30% of people with type two diabetes have worn CGMs and only about 1% of the population that does not have diabetes has worn a CGM. So that's really no kidding. 1%. I think it's changing quickly. I think, you know, the word's getting out, but still very underutilized. And when you think about diabetes, I think this should be standard practice. If this is the, if glucose is the one metric that you're paying the most attention to, Mm -hmm. then definitely we should have, you know, everyone have access to this information. And so one of the, the criticisms we get is, you know, why is this necessary in prevention when maybe individuals with diabetes don't even have access to this? And what we think is, you know, if we can increase the demand for this product, if we can show that this is a powerful tool and that everyone should have access for it, then hopefully, you know, that demand is going to drive down those prices and increase that supply over time. Yeah. So that's really what we're looking to achieve and, and bring this technology to everyone. Yeah, no, I, and, and to your point, and you know, we, what we learn in school is disease builds over decades. It doesn't, you don't wake up one morning diabetic, you know, like you just don't, unless you went somewhere and had really bad food poisoning and it destroys your pancreas, which can happen on occasion, but really not very often. (laughs) Um, And so, and so getting insight and learning to manage your blood sugar early on is going to I think it could prevent so many people from ever even getting to the cliff, never mind falling off of it. I love that analogy. And I couldn't agree more. I think uh, there's a lot of ways we can use technologies that aren't used maybe for this purpose yet, but that's only going to help us achieve better health outcomes in the future. So, you know, there's been so many studies that show even people with normal glycemic values in traditional lab tests. So that fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, have abnormal glucose values when they start to measure with a CGM. Hmm. And this would be, you know, high postprandial peaks. We're seeing that, you know, a large percentage of people so um, are reaching that value above 140 regularly in their day. So this is something that we can absolutely make big changes for. We are not concerned with a single spike above 140. You know, my chocolate covered pretzel story that happens to everyone. (laughs) But it's when that happens repeatedly over yeah. and over and over, we're reaching those high levels and we're not capturing it. We're missing those little yellow warning signs. That's when this can ultimately lead to 
endothelial damage, inflammation, like you mentioned, um, disease states, ultimately insulin resistance, which is going to start this cascade of all these other things that go wrong in our body. But we're, we're waiting till that end point. We're waiting till the finish line to even start the race. And I don't think that's fair to anyone that wants to, to make that powerful change. Nice. Love that. I love that. Um, so what would you say, what would you say, like, what are the, what are, what's the biggest lessons here that you've learned in, in your, in all this time of looking at all these people, like you've looked at thousands of people with data, right? So what, what would your biggest takeaways be? And what would be, what would be your advice? If you had to give like three pieces of advice to people right now, what would it be? That's very, very difficult. (laughs) <laughs> I could probably go on for the next hour about I know. <laughs> uh, but I think a couple of them we touched on, right? I think the timing of your meals really matters. The yeah. timing of your carbohydrates matters. So mm-hmm. if I could tell anyone something in that realm, it would be try and titrate your carbohydrates to your overall activity level. If you include carbohydrates in your diet, you're going to be more insulin sensitive, better able to process those carbs um, and have better responses if you time them around exercise, if you time them with a walk afterwards. And then of course, if you time them earlier in the day when insulin sensitivity is a lot better. So I think we can, we can kind of pack our system and, and really work by aligning our eating window with when insulin sensitivity is the best. So eating with the sun, at least nice. stopping eating like three hours before bed if nice. you can, is number one. I would say that's applicable to almost every single person. Yeah. We talked about how, you know, there's so many nuances in diet. You would probably respond to sweet potatoes way differently than I would. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that piece, but just from a general kind of universal rule of thumb, I think paying attention to timing is crucial. Um, the other thing I think is um, there's an art to fasting. So yeah, fasting, we didn't even talk about fasting. Yeah. Let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, fasting Sometimes people think it has to be a 14 hour window or a 16 hour fasting window. And really that's, that's usually pretty helpful for almost everyone is kind of keeping your meals in an earlier window or a tighter window. But the other thing that I think sometimes gets talked about a little bit less is the fasting windows in between your meals. So if we are eating constantly, if we're grazing, Mm -hmm. if we're eating every two hours, like used to be the the dogma that was saying, yeah. We are constantly stimulating that insulin response. We're not allowing ourselves to get into autophagy, right? We're not allowing ourselves to rest and digest in between our meals. And we're doing a disservice, especially if our goal is weight loss or a healthy weight maintenance. So adequate time in between your meals, I think is, can be helpful for every single person. Absolutely. Um, And that looks different for everyone. You know, some people do need more frequent meals just based on their lifestyle, their diet, whatever they're trying to achieve. But I think just being cognizant of that is, is such a, a valuable strategy. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that four hour window, you should be able to go four hours between meals. And if you're not, you know, either you're not eating the right foods or you haven't gotten to that point where you've got glyce- good glycemic control and that's something to work towards. I mean, not everybody can be there right out of the gate right now, but, and even being able to put a minimum of being able to put 12 hours between the last meal of a day and the first meal of the next day, that's not fasting. That's a gimme. (laughs) That's a practice we should all be utilizing. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it still amazes me the number of people who say there's no way that they could possibly go to bed without a snack 
and sleep through the night. And I, yeah. it, it, I find that, I mean, it may be that you're at a point in your life when that's true, but moving away from that so that you should be able, you, you can get yourself to the place where you can, your blood sugar will stay steady through the night without a bedtime snack, hopefully yeah. is a goal. And maybe in, in cases of extreme adrenal fatigue or something, you're in that world, but. Oh, 100%. I think you make a really good point is that, you know, if you're needing to eat regularly, it is possible that you are not fat adapted at all. So you're unable to kind of tap into any of those alternative fuels and you're relying mm -hmm. solely on glucose. And that's dangerous, right? Because, you know, we've all been with someone that's been hangry and they, <laughs> yeah, you know, they eat for, for two hours and they're about ready to bite your head off. So I think that's never an emotional state anyone ever wants to be in. So if we can really pay attention to that, you know, are you feeling really ravenous throughout your day? Are you unable to go those stretches without food? If so, you might be having huge glucose swings and then subsequent drops. And that triggers your body that, oh, I'm hungry again. I'm hungry. So you're constantly riding this blood sugar roller coaster. And yeah. that can lead to yeah, those energy swings. You're hangry. You're not feeling good. And you, a lot of times it's linked to more anxiety, you know, unstable mood, poorly regulated hunger and fullness cues. So if you feel out of whack with food, there is a possibility that glucose might be a culprit. Right. And the CGM is the way to go um, with NutriSense. So, okay. So that was two. So that was meal okay. timing. And what was your first one? So there was meal timing space between meals. Yeah, I guess those kind of fall into the same, you know, timing matters. Timing. Oh, no, okay, two. <laughs> okay, those are two. All right. I'll try and pick one, one more. more. Um, and I think there's a lot I could say about exercise. I know we've kind of already gotten into that, but the second, if I had to pick one more, I think it would be to manage your stress. We live yes. in a very, very stressful time. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's getting better for some people. I know this past year we've been able to see firsthand how stress, chronic stress affects you and affects glucose and, and how that's all related. But one thing to think about is, you know, when you are under stress, whether that's emotional stress, physical stress, and whether that's acute uh, or chronic, your body's going to respond by either increasing glucose output, increasing glucose production, mm -hmm. and it's going to reduce your insulin sensitivity. So all of those things result in higher glucose values and often more cravings, right? So it's this double-edged sword where you have higher values, but still you're craving sugar. You're craving things that can kind of trigger those, those calming hormones in your body. And so if we can see that firsthand, I think that's another thing that's a struggle is that people often brush their stress off. Oh yeah, I'm stressed, but this is just my, my norm. This is how I function. Well, I don't this need to admit it. Yes. I'll sleep when I'm dead type thing. Right. But when that data is in your face, when you can see how your stress is affecting you every single day, and you know how that's kind of causing this cascade event in your, in your data, then you can't ignore it anymore. You're able to see, okay, well, stress is a big thing for me and I really need to address it. So seeing that, again, that data in your face in real time, it's harder to ignore. And so a lot of times we'll, you know, work with people and help them identify their stressors and then maybe one or two small little things they can add to reduce that stress over time. Nice. As you know, stress management looks different for everyone. For me, it's time in nature. For others, it's, you know, meditation. Um, but whatever that is for you, working that into your lifestyle can make a huge, huge difference in your glucose. So I think Again, once you see that positive benefit of that one small decision, you're able to maintain it a little bit better. Nice. I, I love that. Actually, I have one last question for you. Have you, have you seen 
and, and I don't know if you've come across this in your app, have you seen people who've had COVID, have you seen any changes in their blood sugar management or any impact on blood sugar for either during or, you know, even after like long haulers, have you seen that come out in your data much? Yes, absolutely. So when COVID first hit and everyone was getting it, every single place, we actually saw this in data before the user was diagnosed. So I had a couple of users, their baseline, their postprandial values would be a little bit higher than normal. We've been monitoring for a couple of weeks and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? How are you feeling? Your glucose is higher. You know, we're trying to eliminate any of those possible factors. And then a week later, yeah, I was diagnosed with COVID. So we actually saw wow. this increase in glucose in a lot of our users. <laughs> and that's, again, that's another source of stress. So sure. when, when the body's under illness, it's under attack and it's perceiving that as a threat. And so it responds that same way, right? It's going to increase glucose just so that we have that energy, that fuel available to fight that stressor. Mm-hmm. So this is a good response. That's what we want to happen in our body, but it's definitely really, really interesting to see firsthand. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. So you haven't seen much in the way of long haulers though, in terms of any, anything reflected there, which would be, which is good. I mean, I'm happy to hear that. I was just wondering if maybe um, we were seeing that at all, but uh, I guess that's more, who knows? Okay. So I think, I think we've covered a lot. Is there anything we've left out? Anything else you'd like to tell people? Is there anything you'd like to share beyond that? Like we can tell them, first of all, we for sure can't leave people without giving them a URL, how to find you, how to find NutriSense, the whole nine yards. Um, But is there anything we've left off the table you think we should have covered? (laughs) I think we covered a lot. Like I said, I could probably talk for another hour uh, just on glucose itself. But the one thing I would love everyone just to leave this, if you learn one thing, it's that, um, you know, you have the control of your health. Do not wait for a diagnosis in order to monitor things, to experiment, to see what's working for you or what's not, and to make those changes. So, um, you know, whether you have a condition in your family and you think you're destined to that, or you, you think you're healthy and have no need to monitor anything, at least monitor glucose in some way. It doesn't have to be with NutriSense, doesn't have to be, you know, with a continuous glucose monitor, but check into glucose, see how that's doing, just get a baseline so that you at least have some data to kind of make those informed decisions. Um, If everyone can leave knowing that they have the power in their hands and they can make a meaningful change, then I've done my job. Nice, I love that. And I also love what you said about um, if it runs in your family, because people often will come from a family where there's like my family, there's a ton of type two diabetes, but you can see, sometimes you can see in the lifestyle, in the diet, you can see the things that lead to it and you can make those changes in yourself. So it doesn't have to be, an you know, an inevitable outcome, it can actually become a controllable factor, as you just said, which is great. Um, Yeah. So thank you, Carly. So NutriSense, is it NutriSense.com? So we are at NutriSense.io and you can Mm, find us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Um, send us an email support at NutriSense.io if you want to learn more. Um, we're trying to reach as many people as we can. So reach out if you're interested. I love it. Thank you so much, Carly. Um, It was great talking with you today. And uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to leave us a five-star review on iTunes because that's what helps us to be heard and to be seen. 
If you'd like to connect with me directly, or if you'd like to leave any comments, or if you have any questions about this episode, please reach out to me directly through my website, natnidham.com. And of course, if you're not already a member of the Biohacking Superhuman Performance Community on Facebook, that's where you'll find me every day. It's a short application. Just answered a couple of questions and you're in and interfacing with other amazing biohackers. Thanks again, and we'll look forward to seeing you on the next episode.